Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 151st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman, and as our guest today will tell you, uh, Jennifer was uh, the peak peak uh, name for, for my birth year as a Gen Xer, so I go by my initials JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the literature and ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels, animated videos. Today, we are joined by Jean Twangy. Before I even begin to introduce my guest, I wanna remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and YouTube, you can uh, go ahead and start typing in your questions into the queue. We will get to as many of them as we can. Our guest, Dr. Jean Twangy, is a psychologist who researches generational differences, including work values, life goals, and speed of development. She is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and the author of more than 180 scientific publications and books, including The Narcissism Epidemic, Generation Me, and iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up uh, less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Her latest book, just published this year, is Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Jean, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. So you don't have a copy of the new one? Uh, we It, it didn't come yet, but there okay. you go. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. My, my, my colored post-it notes um, in there. <laughs> yeah, my copy is uh, is actually right here on Audible. Uh, there I, you go. I, that works. I highly recommend the, uh, the Audible versions. Um, you've got a, a great narrator there. So um, so let's first start with your origin story, where you grew up, early influences, and what inspired you to make studying generational differences your life's work. Yeah, so I'm originally from Minnesota, and then uh, we moved uh, to Texas for my dad's job, and I went back to the Midwest for my education. And when I was doing my senior honors thesis at the University of Chicago, I was giving out uh, a questionnaire that asked about personality traits, and some of those are Things like being assertive and being a leader. So things that, you know, in very stereotypically ways have sometimes been associated with uh, with men more than women. And I noticed that the women in the sample there in the early 90s were scoring much higher in saying they were assertive and leaders um, compared to what the 1970s test manual said they were supposed to score. So that made me realize that might be a generational difference and um, got the same result with that uh, questionnaire the next year in grad school at the University of Michigan, and then went and found everybody who had used that questionnaire that had used it on college students and published it in a journal and found just a really, really linear increase in women saying they were assertive and had leadership qualities. So that was my first paper on generational differences. Fantastic. Now, um, like myself, you're a member of Generation X, which you've called the middle child of generations. Yeah. Does having that generational birth order, if you will, um, provide any particular 
advantages in surveying those who came before and those who proceed after? So Gen X is the middle child right now in terms of generations. They won't be that way forever, um, but Gen X has boomers and silence older than them and millennials and Gen Z as younger. Um, even when Gen X, you know, years go by and Gen X isn't the middle child in a literal way, I think Gen X will always be the middle child in a figurative way uh, because we're always ignored. So it's very common to see books and articles about generations that focus just on boomers and millennials and forget that there's a generation in between. I actually think a lot of Gen Xers like that. I think mm -hmm. we like flying under the radar. Uh, doesn't bother me. Um... But I, I did uh, a lot of what you wrote about that uh, generation did resonate um, a lot. And it was really the last generation before um, the, the, the internet. I mean, I remember in one of my first jobs, uh, speechwriter for President Bush, you'd go to the library, you know, mm -hmm. you, that's how you would do your research and, and you'd use very early computers um, to, to print out, print out your work. Now, uh, your latest book is a, uh, it's a panoramic tour of various generations from silence to boomers to Gen X, millennials, Gen Z for a level set for our viewers. Perhaps you'd refresh our memories with the years that you use to uh, define these categories so that everyone can situate themselves, their parents, their mm -hmm. grandparents, their children, et cetera, along the spectrum. Sure. So the silent generation, also another generation that's often forgotten, born in 1925 to 1945. Uh, boomers, 1946 to 1964. Gen X, 1965 to 1979. Millennials, 1980 to 1994. And Gen Z, 1995 to 2012. And then after them, we have little kids or younger kids, 2013 and later, sometimes they're called Gen Alpha. I call them polars after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. Interesting. Okay. I was wondering about the origin of that. So um, one of the reasons I was so drawn to this earlier book of yours is that our primary Focus at the Atlas Society is introducing young people in their teens and 20s to the ideas of Ayn Rand. Um, and that's the a generation you cover in iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Um, our approach is premised on the supposition that reading habits have changed so that when it comes to a novelist most famous for books that run uh, to a thousand pages, our approach requires some innovation. What can you tell us about um, changes in reading habits and anything specifically about reaching the uh, iGen or Gen Z generation? Yeah, I think your instincts are correct. So um, in both the books, one of the surveys that I draw from is a survey of high school seniors. So most are 18, the rest are 17. And we have data going back to 1976, which is really powerful because it means we can compare each generation going back to the boomers anyway, at the same age. So there's a question on that survey that asks um, about reading. So reading books, magazines, or newspapers, 
And I looked at the percentage you say they do that every day or almost every day. Well, back in the late 70s, it, that number was 60%. And keep in mind, this is asking about things you read that are not for school. So it's leisure time reading. So more than half of 17 and 18 year olds read for pleasure in one way or another in the late 70s. And the last time that they asked that question, at least in that particular way, was in 2017. And at that point, it was 15%. Wow. So that's an enormous shift. It's not that young people never like to read. More than half of them used to do that every day voluntarily. So it has gone way down. Now, that decline is pretty steady. It started in the 80s when it was Gen Xers who were in high school, and but it just kept going. So that's a really, really, that's one of the biggest generational differences I've ever, I've ever documented. So where is that time going? Um, sure, it's going to the internet and social media, um, but it probably also goes to, you know, reading shorter form text, um, playing video games, watching TV, things like that. So let me see if I got this right. The percentage of um, people who were reading books and newspapers in their leisure time uh, in the late 70s, that was more than half of teens mm -hmm. and young yep. adults. Yep. And when measured again in 2015, 2017, 2017, mm -hmm. that went from more than half to 15%. Yeah, that's right. Well, yep. All right. Well, we got to just continue to keep... <laughs> keep switching it up, but I, I appreciate, you know, having the hard data to, mm -hmm. to back up sort of some of the, um, the approach that we take because, uh, you know, we do TikTok and it can be challenging to kind of convey some of these complex ideas in a, you know, very short clip, but, um, but the idea is that we're kind of putting it out there, the breadcrumbs or, kind of um, marketing touches and um, trying to spark interest for those who would be uh, prepared to take the next step in their in their journey. So um, you previously wrote about millennials in Generation Me and described that as an easier task given that you shared with them some generational milestones. But in iGen, you had the um, other advantage of three daughters born 2006, 2009, 2012, did that help you understand your subject matter or your daughters any better? And did your findings lead to any changes in your own parenting approach um, to help kids, your kids avoid some of the pitfalls of their generation, like being less happy or uh, less prepared for adulthood? Yeah, so, you know, it really goes both ways. When I write the books, the data really comes first. There's so many stereotypes and so many myths out there about generations. My goal is to help us understand each other better. And I think the best way to do that is to be empirical and to look at the survey data. And fortunately, we have a lot more of that now. We're in the era of big data. We, you know, we don't really have to guess anymore about the generational differences. So in, in both of these books, that was that was really my goal to just find as, as much data on the changes and the generational differences as possible. And then that is of course informed by um, 
talking to young people as well. So in iGen, I did a bunch of interviews in generations because it's about all six generations that I've done interviews. The book would would be the thousand pages that we've been talking about, if not more. Um, so that's a challenge, you know, in today's market. So, um, but I was able to find, you know, certainly lots of examples uh, through social media and, and other sources. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I found for Gen Z or iGen is just a really alarming rate of increase in teen depression and self-harm and loneliness. It started around 2012 and just kept going from there. So when I wrote iGen, that was really a mystery that I had to try to solve. Why? Why did teen depression start to go up around 2012? there's a lot of attention now to the adolescent mental health crisis but it's often framed in terms of the pandemic and this is not due to the pandemic teen depression started to you know double between 2011 and 2019 long before the pandemic was on the scene um and realized the end of 2012 was when the majority of americans owned a smartphone for the first time it's also around the time that social media use among teens became much more ubiquitous so i realized technology might have something to do with it that although there's a lot of advantages to modern technology, if it is keeping us from relating to each other and spending time with each other face-to-face, that can be a problem. Because that's exactly what's happened with teens. They spend a lot less time with each other in person because that's been replaced by that online communication. Yeah, and I thought was fascinating in your latest book, Generations, in the section on uh, Generation Z, you had even newer data to draw on and were able to dig a little bit deeper into, well, is this just a U.S. phenomenon? But um, maybe tell a little bit about uh, how you were able to track this as actually a, a global trend. Yeah, because that, that's an important consideration, because when the data from the U.S. was coming out, a lot of people said, well, if it is technology, if it is smartphones and social media that is behind this troubling increase in teen depression, then that should be global. So at first it was it was hard uh, to find that data, but now we have it. So especially from English speaking countries, we have a lot of data, depression, self and self-harm have increased in almost exactly the same pattern as it has in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia. We have some data from the Nordic countries and Scandinavian countries as well. And then for adolescent loneliness, um, a colleague of mine found the PISA data set, which looked at adolescent loneliness since 2000 in 37 countries around the world. And we found that it increased starting around 2012 exactly the same pattern is in the US. And that that's helpful for a number of reasons. One of which is it helps us rule out any causes that are more unique to the United States, <clears throat> such as political trends or school shootings, because those are things that don't happen as much. Um, you know, school shootings do not happen as much um, in other countries around the world. So it seems clear that that was not the cause. Because if that was the cause, you'd expect to see different trends around the world. And instead, the trend is exactly the same in countries that had the introduction of the smartphone around the same time as the U.S. So one of the big takeaways uh, from both your iGen book and your latest book, Generations, the section on Gen Z, 
was uh, how kids born after 1995 were growing up much more slowly than previous generations. What are some examples of that? And does that contribute to their being less prepared for adulthood? Yeah, so this is one of the big cultural changes that has affected all generations. And we notice it more, you know, with, with Gen Z. But at times and places when people live longer and when education takes longer to finish, which is where we are right now as a society, parents tend to have fewer children and nurture them more carefully. And because people have more years of life, the entire developmental trajectory slows down from infancy to old age. So children are less independent. Adolescents are less likely to have their driver's license or to have a paid job or to have sex or to drink alcohol. Young adults take longer to get married. Um, they have children later. They settle into careers later. And, and middle-aged and older people look and feel younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. So it's, you know, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50, and so on. So although this is often seen as something that's impacting young people, it's really affecting all of the generations. But it is really noticeable with teens because a lot of Gen X parents look at their Gen Z kids and say, wait, you know, why don't, why are you not interested in getting a driver's license? Because I was at the DMV on my 16th <laughs> birthday to get that driver's license. And a lot of Gen Z kids are like, eh, they don't really care as much. Um, they're not as interested in being independent. So there's advantages to the slow life strategy. So most parents are thrilled that not as many kids are having sex and drinking alcohol. But it's not just about those things. It's also about just not as likely to go out or have a job or have the driver's license. So there's these trade-offs. Because the downside is that they're just graduating from high school without as much experience with independence and without as much experience making decisions on their own. And that can be tough once they get to college or into the workplace. Yes. Tell us about the whole use of this word adulting and that, that phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a term, as far as I can tell, coined by millennials, that adult is a verb. And it's usually used, which I find this fascinating, that, the, that as a verb, adult is, and adulting, it's used to describe things that aren't very much fun. You know, it implies that being adult isn't fun, which I find a little strange because there's big advantages to being an adult instead of a child. You have freedom and being able to make decisions on your own is one of them. Uh, yeah, so adulting tends to refer to paying bills um, or to going to work and things like that. So, yeah. People online will talk about, you know, I'm scared of adulting and I'm tired of adulting. Interesting. Well, we're going to turn to audience. I'm going to dip into those audience questions. I know they are piling up, but uh, just one more big takeaway from your writing about um, Gen Z. iGen was the preoccupation with safety. Again, some clear upsides, fewer car accidents, things like that. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the trade-offs? Yeah, so it's really been this huge emphasis on, on safety for children and teens in the last few decades. And then it goes hand in hand with that, that slow life strategy. What's fascinating about it to me is that, that that's mostly been something that has been implemented by adults and by parents. And you'd think teenagers especially would rebel against that. But that is not what Gen Z has done. They have embraced the culture of safety. 
So that has advantages, fewer car accidents, fewer get into fistfights, things like that. But there has been what some people have referred to as mission creep around safety. It's become that parents don't just try to protect their children from physical dangers. They protect them from having experiences. Also, Gen Z sometimes talks about emotional safety. So not just physical safety, but emotional safety. And, you know, again, there's trade-offs because on the one hand, if that means having more awareness around, say, mental health issues, and that, that could be a positive. On the other hand, if emotional safety means I can't talk to you because I disagree with you and we can't have um, a civil conversation about things we disagree with and we can't have the speaker come to campus, so we'll disinvite them and we need to have a safe space with videos of puppies and pillows, as some campuses have done. Then, especially Gen X and boomers look at that and say, well, hold on. You know, this isn't now just about safety. This, you have to learn how to deal with some of these experiences. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was interesting, even in um, my own sphere of um, one of my nephews uh, was raised in a very particular kind of bubble of Marin and um, probably only reacted with people who thought in a certain way, went to school in, in the Midwest, had a hard time dealing, I think, with the differences and ended up um, transferring back to, to a college that I, I think felt probably safer for him in, in some ways. Um, all right, looking at some of these questions, uh, my modern goal coming in on Instagram um, wants to talk about how different generations generally interact with each other, uh, data showing how intergenerationals households work or don't work. Do that? Does that happen to promote kind of more understanding across generations or are the changes so different that um, it causes more friction? Yeah, so that's something that the data I analyzed really didn't address. Um, but I, I think you can take a starting point with what some of the differences are to try to bridge some of those intergenerational gaps, whether that's at work or at home, of you know having having that perspective. First of all, that we've all been shaped by the changes in technology. There's a common perception with generations that generations are about the events that you experience. And that sometimes means people feel like, oh, the younger generation can say, well, you didn't experience what I did at the same age, so you won't be able to understand me. Or even more, older generations can say, you know, well, you weren't alive when the Vietnam War protests were happening, so you couldn't understand. So that can create some division. But if we think about it instead, that we've all been shaped by these changes in technology, I think that can help unite us in realizing that that's, that's why day-to-day -day life is really different is because of the changes in technology. And yes, uh, it's true. For example, Gen Xers didn't have social media when they were teenagers. So we have to think about you know, how that experience is different. Um, on the other hand, we, we have all had that experience of feeling like we can't put that phone down. All right, on Twitter, Zach Uber as, um, asks, they say that people are um, taking longer to grow up nowadays. At the same time, 
it seems young people are being exposed to more adult things at a much younger age. Is this true? You actually have some great findings in your book about, for example, uh, exposure to pornography. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's true for the most part. Um, so it's not for every kid necessarily, but this has been the interesting movement around child safety is that we have protected kids from physical dangers and they are taking longer to do real world adult things. Yet it's become very common to give an eight or nine year old child a smartphone sometimes without even any parental controls on it. And then what can they discover? Sometimes that's pornography, sometimes it's other inappropriate things. And there hasn't been as much of that consideration of online safety. I mean, social media is a great example. It's very, very unregulated. So just now in the last year or so, there's been a lot more attention paid to perhaps regulating social media more, especially for um, younger children and younger teens. And maybe if you could elaborate a little bit about um, how that exposure to pornography has played out uh, for you know millennials and Gen Z, particularly when it comes to things like relationships. I particularly found that um, you're documenting the changes in uh, relationships and same sex relationships and all of that just has has really changed a lot. Yeah, so there's there's some speculation that the um, widespread accessibility of pornography, especially starting at such young ages, may be one reason why young adults are actually less likely to be sexually active now than they were a few decades ago, which is really surprising considering all the dating apps out there, considering that uh, the acceptance of premarital sex is, is higher than it used to be. But yeah, uh, millennial and Gen Z young adults, less likely to um, have had sex in the last year. And um, I first documented that along with some colleagues uh, in the mid 2010s, and that trend has continued to grow. Uh, which again, I wouldn't, as, you know, I, I think at the time that was a really shocking result and it's surprising it's kept going, but you know, I think there's a lot of factors in that. Just the life strategy is in there too, um, but some of this exposure to uh, pornography may have something to do with it because some people may think, well, that's can be a replacement for relationships. And then there's some people who have written about how that accessibility of pornography has had an impact on, on people's relationships, made them more transactional, made them more um, just likely to focus on the sex rather than the relationship. Yeah, I think you used the phrase hot sex, but cold emotions. Right. And that one's, that one's not mine. It's, um, it's uh, a sociologist who wrote a book called American Hookup, interviewed a bunch of college students, and, and that was her conclusion. Uh, on Facebook, Jack Rogers is asking whether social media has made it difficult for younger people to find purpose in their lives, uh, preferring instead instant gratification. And maybe that also can combine with some of the changes you document with regards to religion, spirituality, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. So there's definitely been a decline, especially among young people in affiliating with the religion, even the private practice or private beliefs around religion, like belief in God um, and prayer have, have gone down. So those are less common and it doesn't seem to have been replaced by spirituality. That's a common misperception that, uh, oh, young people are more spiritual, even if they're less religious, the data don't really support that. Um, so then you have to ask, well, what, then what replaces that? And sometimes, you know, some people have made the argument that politics have replaced religion in some ways, uh, or that online life has replaced religion. All right, I'll take one more question then I, that I have to turn back to a few that I prepared for you. Uh, on Zoom, Robert Griffiths is asking, how concerned are you about how narcissistic people are becoming in their interactions and relationships? Well, you know, it, with narcissism, there's actually some good news, at least for young adults. So we can trace narcissistic personality traits from 1982 until recently, based on the most common measure. It's been used um, with college students over that time period. And narcissism scores did increase from 1982 till about 2008. But since 2008, they have gone down. And they're now at about the same level they were in 1982. Now, that's one population. It's hard to say, you know, how it looks across, you know, all adults. But that's an encouraging sign in some ways. Um, you know, I think this, this, the sad news is it, it doesn't, it's not that surprising that narcissism has, has uh, continued to decline because that is what you'd expect with the rise in depression and the uh, decline in self-esteem that we see elsewhere among teens and young adults. When did the, uh, the rise in narcissism peak? About 2008. Interesting. Uh, all right. Wanted to ask about work and um, how the different generations, um, how their attitudes about work uh, have changed over the years, and particularly how the, uh, the youngest generation, the Gen Z, um, how they are making that transition, transition to work if they're nostalgic for childhood and a time when their needs were taken care of. Um, how do they regard things like job interviews and performance reviews? Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's a number of elements here. So one is just that the annual review is too long and waiting two years for a promotion is too long. Just uh, with the internet, even though I talk about the slow life strategy over the whole course of life, our everyday life has sped up. And there's a lot of impatience out there. Um, it's just the pace has picked up. So a lot of managers have moved to more frequent evaluations, more frequent feedback than the annual review. Um, some have done, I think this is a, such a great solution, instead of uh, you're going to be eligible for a promotion after two years, have smaller promotions every six months. Some managers hmm. have had some good luck with that. Um, for Gen Z, so... We have a new generation, understand they're different from millennials. That's the big piece because a lot of managers say, I just got used to millennials and now we have this new generation and they are very different from millennials. Millennials, especially as young adults, very optimistic, very self-confident and Gen Z is not. They're much more pessimistic and not as self-confident. So realize that there has been that generational shift. I've seen it in my own classroom as, as a university 
university professor. Um, and Gen Z, like every generation, you know, has strengths and weaknesses. So obviously they have a lot of strength in, in their tech savvy. Um, they are more likely than previous generations were at the same age to say that they want to help others. So helping others in difficulty, getting a job where they can help others is important to them. In terms of um, the centrality of work and work ethic, it's a little bit of a complex picture. So um, for a while, Gen Z was more likely to say that work was going to be a central part of their life, more likely to say that they're willing to work overtime until 2021. And then that trended significantly downwards. We ha we'll have to keep an eye on that in the survey data to see if that decline continues. Because uh, it looked like for a while, Gen Z is very practical, makes sense that they would recognize the value of hard work. But coming out of the pandemic, there was quiet quitting, there was a labor shortage, you know, things started to change. So when you look at those surveys of 18 year olds, they were starting to pick up on that. Or maybe that even predicted, since the data was from 2021, what was going to happen in 2022 with all the talk of quiet quitting. If this is a generation that prizes security and safety, can we expect to see fewer taking an entrepreneurial career track? That's how it looks. And so that was another surprise uh, with work attitudes. There's a really, really common perception that Gen Z is uniquely entrepreneurial. But if you look in the national survey data, wanting to own your own business or be self-employed peaked with Gen Xers in the 80s and early 90s. And it's ticked up a little bit, like by a couple of percentage points in the last 10 years, but not by a huge amount. So that that was you know another surprise that it's easier now to start your own business, say putting up a website. Right? So that's probably why we've seen a little bit of an increase. But this idea that you know Gen Z doesn't want to have a regular job doesn't seem to be supported by that data. So let's talk just a little bit about um, changes in politics, ideology. Uh, I was surprised by your chapter exploring young people's political views, thinking that this emphasis on safety and nostalgia for childhood might incline them to want um, more of a socialist nanny state that promises to take care of them. And perhaps there is some of that. But you also found that in fact, this generation lines up more uh, neatly with libertarianism. Uh, help us understand this seeming contradiction. Yeah, so that, that's really what I think characterizes this, this generation is they, there's obviously every generation is going to have a diversity of political thought. And this one is no different. You know, you can't automatically go in and assume that all young people are going to be, uh, you know, on the left. So, but what does show up much more frequently with this generation is that libertarian point of view of individualism and, you know, putting more, more emphasis on the self and less on social rules. And that's going to tend toward the idea, maybe not being clearly on the left or right, but being more libertarian in terms of just smaller government um, and fewer fewer laws restricting things. But it depends too on when you're looking because those I came to those conclusions with the data up to about 2015 or 2016. And in, in recent years, you've seen a little bit more movement toward the left among this group, especially on social issues. Interesting. 
Um, well, it, earlier in our interview, you talked about wanting to uh, dispel some of the myths that you find with regards to um, the various generations. What are some of the, the biggest misconceptions and myths, whether about Gen Z or, you know, looking back to older generations, how we tend to regard them or just even myths about generational change that, oh, it's a pendulum, it's always swinging mm -hmm. back, that right. kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I can start there. I mean, because that's the traditional theory of, of generations is that generations are shaped by major events. There was an influential theory um, a few decades ago, Strauss and Howe's book, also called Generations, that came out in 1991. So the generations came in cycles of four. But I think that cycle has clearly broken down with the recent generations because they said that the millennials are going to be like the greatest generation who fought World War II, which is um, meaning very much into group action and collectivism. And that's pretty much the opposite of how millennials have um shaped have their how millennials values have been shaped and then that system would also make gen z like the silent generation who married younger and had kids younger than any other generation close to them and that's exactly the opposite of what gen z is doing so clearly there's something else going on and i think that something else is technology not just the internet but also better medical care and air conditioning and labor-saving devices, all of these things that really describe why living now is so completely different from what it was like to live 150 years ago, or even 50 years ago, or 20 years ago. Really, it's technology that has the biggest impact on our day-to-day -day lives and leads to the biggest generational differences. So I, I think one of the biggest misperceptions of generations um, is actually on another topic. It's on economic performance. So there's a very common idea that millennials are broke, that they'll be the first generation to not do as well as their parents, that they'll never own homes. And that's not true anymore. It is true that generation that, that millennials had a difficult start as a generation during the Great Recession. However, median incomes have roared back since then. And the median income of 25 to 44 year olds now is at all time highs, even when corrected for inflation. So that's correcting for everything families spend money on, everything from housing to televisions to healthcare. Millennials own houses at almost the same rate as Gen Xers and boomers at the same age, really only a couple of percentage points off. Um, they're wealth building which in 2015, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis said, you know, millennials might be a lost generation when it comes to wealth. They've caught up. They're now neck and neck with Gen Xers at the same age and on track to equal boomers. And that's important too, because that takes into account housing uh, equity. And it also takes into account student loans, which of course is something that has had a bigger impact on millennials. So they've had more student loans. However, more of them have gotten a college education. And that's one of the reasons why they're doing better economically. Interesting. All right. I'm not sure if I understand this question uh, on Facebook. Simon Garcia is asking whether, uh, Professor, you think the younger generations suffer from mental issues due to a lack of ways to rebel. Hmm. Well... They still and have. You, you talk about how yeah. this is a less rebellious uh, mm -hmm. generation. So, 
maybe talk a little bit about that, how that rebellious attitude kind of made its way through the generations. And even if they're less rebellious, what when they are rebellious, how how is it manifesting? Yeah, and when I'm talking about rebellion, I'm I'm mostly referring to that culture of safetyism, like we were mm-hmm. discussing. Um, and that really that got going with millennials. So I think that's one reason why we can't completely point to that for the mental health crisis. It may be in there. It certainly may be one of the causes um, that we've overprotected kids, that they haven't had as much experience with independence. You know, that could certainly have an impact. But we see the biggest increases in mental health issues among the youngest kids, 10 to 14-year-olds. So there, that's that's not an age that is as, is as associated with independence and rebellion as say 15 and 19 year olds where we don't we see it we see an increase in depression but it's not as big um the timing also doesn't really line up as much because it does start with millennials and the mental health crisis really started with gen c all right um john bird on facebook another factoid to possibly elaborate on younger generations Having devolved with respect to dating, they see not just mass-produced products as disposable, but also relationships, um, minimal effort to maintain a relationship. Tell us about dating and Mm -hmm. um, if uh, I I know that younger kids are very much uh, teens unlikely to be dating in in the way that um, Gen Gen Xers and boomers were, but what do you find? Yeah. Yeah. So teens are just, they're just less likely to be dating. Um, So if you look at the percentages of um, say high school seniors who ever go out on dates, that's gone way down. Um, Eighth graders are an interesting group. It's a survey that asks them. And for a while for Gen Xers and most millennials, about half of of, um, eighth graders were dating in some way or another. And now it's more like a fourth. So pretty big changes. And in, in, uh, in the recent book, I also looked at some questions that ask high school seniors about um, the likelihood they'll get married, even the likelihood that they'll have a steady romantic partner. And those numbers had been steady and high since the late 1970s, really hardly changed for decades until you get the transition to Gen Z around 2012 with that age group, and then they started to go down. So Gen Z is much more skeptical about marriage, about having children as well, and just about having steady relationships. So in your role as a professor of psychology at San Diego State, you've been teaching, um, dealing with kids for at least two, maybe uh, having exposure to more generations. What have you found what kind of differences are you, you talked a little bit about seeing this lack of confidence and tentativeness in the current crop of students, but how, what kinds of changes have you seen over, over the years, particularly with regards to things like being curious about other points of view and uh, tolerant of mm-hmm. um, debate? Yeah. So I, I teach large lecture classes um, rather than small discussion classes. So I haven't had as much observation of some of the things around discussion, but I have definitely noticed that um, students now are, are, are a little more reluctant to raise their hand and ask questions and participate than say the students who were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but today's students are also really nice. 
uh, mm -hmm. and they're less entitled. Well, that's uh, we, we like that. That that is a some some good news. Um, so, in your latest book, Generations, you also introduce us to the newest generation, the Polars, and um, born after 2013. So, no, it's still very early, about 10 years of being able to have data on them. Um, but but what can you tell us? Yeah. So, with Polars, we see a very similar um, trade off than what we get with with Gen Z that they are safer in many ways when it comes to, say, childhood injuries. However, there's also a big increase in childhood obesity and a big increase wow. in kids who are not getting enough exercise. So I think a lot of this has to do with screens, that young kids used to run around outside a lot more, get a lot more exercise, and now they're inside um, with the tablet or the video gaming. So more protected physically, but also some of these both physical and eventually mental dangers of spending your life on a screen. You know, it's funny that you say that. I was just at a very large wedding, a Chabad wedding of Orthodox uh, Jews this week and hundreds of, of people. And the thing that was the, my biggest takeaway was looking at these young kids, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and so many of them were very, very overweight. And I thought, oh, that's going to be difficult to, to, to deal with. But in a way, it's uh, interesting because these are families where they're having eight children or nine children. And I would assume like in a family like that, you're probably going to have to, it probably would swing more to a, a faster life strategy in a way. I mean, you, you mm -hmm. can't spend as much care and time and focus on one or two children. Do, do you find that the, the um, family sizes uh, makes a difference in, in how um, parents kind of go about protecting or overprotecting their kids? I mean, that is, as a general principle, very general, um, when you come from a larger family, you learn how to fend for yourself a little bit earlier. And you may have that experience of having responsibility for younger siblings at a at a younger age. So that's what the slow life versus fast life strategy kind of observes is that you will, in theory anyway, grow up faster if you have more siblings. Um, in your book, you argue that each generation is shaped by the historical events and cultural mo movements of their time. What do you think will be the defining movements of the 21st century for Gen Z and the polars that you just mentioned? Yeah, like the, the pandemic will probably be the event that will be the most discussed um, by these two generations. Um, but I also just don't think those major events have the biggest impact. They have an impact, but I think the changes in technology have a bigger impact. So for Gen Z, that's going to be the smartphone for Polars. Maybe it'll be artificial intelligence. Yeah. So um, not trying to put you on the spot or ask you to gaze into a crystal ball, but there is so much buzz surrounding AI now, techno pessimists envisioning a uh, dystopia of techno overlords and techno utopians uh, envisioning a world in which 
robots will take care of all our needs um, with predictions of accelerating change one way or another. Are there any constants or principles uh, that your years studying generational evolution suggest that may provide clues to the future? Well, I, I think with AI, it's going to be kind of unpredictable to see how that's going to go. You know, I have a little bit more confidence in other predictions that uh, the workplace is never going to go back to five days a week in person for everyone, that we're going to have more hybrid situations. So thus, commercial real estate may not be the best investment, for example. Um, and that residential real estate, big houses are still going to be in, even if people don't have as many children, that they're going to want two home offices, maybe one for, for each member of the couple. Um, and that, uh, speaking of which, the birth rate, I don't think the birth rate's ever going to come back up, uh, given that Gen Z says at 18 that they're not as likely, it's not as likely that they're going to want to have children. Yeah, you know, um, in, in reading your uh, the two books about Gen Z, I have noticed, um, had a couple of conversations with some of our friends, our, our donors who said, uh, you know, that their kids, their, their sons are, you know, handsome and they're in twenties and um, studying to become a pilot or whatever, but are just celibate. And it's not just mm -hmm. that they don't have opportunity. They, they are not interested in having um, sexual relations. Tell, tell us a little bit about how these um, different the changes in sexuality, um, also with regards to same sex and um, and the whole gender thing, which really seems to have uh, exploded from my what I've gathered that previously this seemed to be um, more focused on um, males identifying as as female or not feeling that they were. Um, comfortable in, in the male body in which they were born. And now that just seems to have swung and to be a phenomenon of uh, young girls and young women feeling that they are in fact male. Yeah. So there's, there's two different changes here. So one is in terms of sexual orientation. So who people are attracted to, how they identify, whether that's gay or lesbian or bisexual. And there by far the biggest change has been the increase and the number of um, young women identifying as bisexual. There's been also an increase in men identifying as bisexual. A lot less change in those identifying as gay or lesbian. That's stayed, you know, that's increased a little bit, but stayed relatively stable. Um, and then in terms of transgender identification, between 2014 and 2021, the number of young adults, so 18 to 26 year olds, identifying as transgender quadrupled in a pretty short period of time. And that was almost exclusively driven by those who uh, were assigned female at birth. Because uh, you're right, it used to be that most of the uh, discussion around people who are transgender was the, among those who were assigned male at birth. And now that has shifted. What do you think might be driving that? We really don't know. Because um, the, these, these changes have um, happened in a short period of time. And one thing, there's a couple of things that are interesting that may not entirely explain it, but help rule out some possibilities. So one thing that's interesting is there's been very little change 
in transgender identification among older people. So those ages 27 and older, there hasn't been much change since 2014, even though there's been such a big change among young adults. The other is that increase in transgender identification among young adults is almost exactly the same in red states, conservative states versus blue liberal states. So whatever is occurring, it's national and not regional. You think it's also international or do we not have that data yet? I, and I mostly look at U.S. data. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that data exists internationally, but that'd be a great thing to look at. All right. Well, we're, we've got about uh, seven more minutes. So, um, Professor, uh, you've written so many books, uh, hundreds of papers. Is there uh, an area that we haven't covered that you'd really like to share with, with our viewers today? Um, we haven't talked a lot about boomers. And, um, you know, boomers are a generation with a lot of influence. They've also gotten a lot of criticism. Um, and even though I'm a Gen Xer, I'm supposed to not like boomers. Um, I think you have to, you have to take a, a clear eye on this. And I think a, a lot of the criticism, a lot of the idea of blaming, oh, sorry, of blaming boomers for everything um, doesn't really capture their experience that there were a lot of boomers, especially those who didn't get a college education, who really ended up stuck as the economy changed. So boomers were really the first victims of income inequality and the shifting economy, not the perpetrators. And I think that's another myth that we really have to confront when we're talking about the generational differences. Um, so of course, boomers kind of started with, uh, you know, the, uh, we associate them at least with the counterculture of the 60s and, and the 70s and the sexual revolution and campus protests for free speech and anti-draft and all of that. Um, but this is a generation that's also um, changed over the years uh, in terms yeah. of their priorities and their politics. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, boomers were the hippies of the 60s and then the yuppies of the 80s. And I really captured their political journey, at least, you know, it's one of one study of um, political beliefs that goes back to the 1940s, which is amazing. So you can trace boomers for the, basically their whole lives through this study. And many more of them were liberal progressives when they were younger at, by reputation. And then the 80s that shifted very quickly in the age of Reagan, where boomers became more Republican and more conservative, and they more or less stayed that way ever since, at least if you trace the, the averages. You use some phrasing um, in your books with a generate with generations that started out as wanting more radical change, and then at some point, I think you say, think they feel like things have changed yeah. enough. Mm -hmm. um, and do you see that happening as well with uh, with the Gen Z um, for, mm -hmm. as as the time goes by? Yeah, possibly. And that, but that does happen. It happens to almost every generation. They will right, agitate for change when they're you, younger. You focus, you focus a lot on the, you know, yeah. the uh, racial, um, mm -hmm. the focus on anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, I, critical race theory, all of this. I wonder if at some point, I, I wouldn't say the pendulum swings back, but, but, uh, um, they may continue to evolve their views. 
yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen, and that 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 does that does happen. Um, and I do think there is a generational element to some of these debates, which hasn't always been recognized. And the break seems to be between Gen Xers and Boomers on one side, and Millennials and Gen Z on the other. So among those those four those four generations, that's really where it breaks. So many of the conflicts, um, that's how it's been. So the Gen X editor at the New York Times, he wanted to run the op-ed. Uh, on the right, and then the young employees, like young millennial and Gen Z employees, who said no and got them fired. Um, the Disney CEO, who was either a boomer or a Gen Xer, who said, We're not going to put out a statement on politics. Um, and the young employee said, You have to. And he did. And then now he and, and uh, uh, Disney and, and uh, Florida are and having their conflicts. Yeah. Um, so, and various, you know, Gen X, um, often entertainers have been uh, the, the subject of um, at least attempted cancellation, usually coming from the younger generations, usually coming from the from the left. But, you know, we're in a strange political time. Uh, the um, the sad fact of the matter is there's there's um, attempts at censorship from both sides. Of the political aisle. Well, yeah. um, as as they, 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 we always hear that politics is downstream from culture, but uh, culture is downstream from something else, and um, that's philosophy. And so, mm-hmm. that's our focus at the Atlas Society in trying to promote uh, the values of reason, objectivity, mm-hmm. um, productivity, uh, pride in in uh, achievement. An accomplishment. So, um, with your advice in terms of how to reach young people, we'll uh, we'll keep at it and hopefully um, continue to make a difference. Uh, finally, you're one of the most prolific academics when it comes to writing for both scholarly and popular audiences. I know right now you're um, focused on uh, the many interviews that you're getting about your current book, and um, we're gonna. Put that uh, those links in our uh, various conversations on the different platforms again. But um, anything on your bucket list in terms of uh, areas that you're you've been thinking about wanting to explore in the future, or does well, just every generation yeah. give you more material? Yeah, they do, and that's actually what I was going to say. It'll be um, very interesting to see what ends up shaping polars or alphas. You know, those after Gen Z. Um, Given what I do, I have to you know wait a few years until they're going to be old enough to fill out those surveys. But there's there's data beginning um, with those who are in eighth grades. So we don't have to wait that long. Maybe five years, six years, we'll have a better picture. And you know, the other thing I'm really focused on is um, giving giving talks on this material and often um, talks about generations that. And with a question that's on a lot of people's minds, which is how to find a balance with technology. Because, you know, technology is not going away and there's a lot of good things about it. But many people, including a lot of young people, feel like it's taken over their lives. And in writing this book, it helped me see both the upsides and downsides of technology. And I've realized, you know, here's the dilemma that we're in right now. That technology, like say better medical care, has given us longer lives. It has saved us from drudgery in many ways, but what are we going to do with that extra time, those years and those hours of our days? Because if the answer is watching a lot of TikTok videos, 
that's probably not the right answer. I agree, but you guys can go and watch um, Ayn Rand clips on TikTok. Yeah, yeah that's allowed. Funny, funny minute, twenty minutes max a day. So, all right. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Professor. Uh, really appreciate this. Was just a magnificent interview. We learned so much, and I want to encourage everyone watching and listening to go out and uh, check out Jean Twangy's books on Amazon and on her uh, website. It's JeanTwangy.com, right? That's right. There you go. All right. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who joined um, with all of your great questions. If uh, you enjoyed this video, if you enjoyed the Atlas Society Asks series, uh, any of our other programming, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And make sure to tune in next week. I am going to be off. My colleague, senior fellow, uh, Robert Trasinski, will host a special discussion on art and aesthetics on the Atlas Society Asks. See you then.